introducing Anna Bellick, Director of Cybersecurity Strategy at Sysdig. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, where are you uh, in the world at the moment? I am just outside Boston in Concord, Massachusetts. Nice. Is that HQ for you? Are you home office today? Um, so uh, the company that I work for is headquartered in San Francisco, like all the other cool Silicon Valley companies. Uh, but we're at, we've been a global remote company since actually before COVID. Uh, yeah. So lots of us are all over the place. And I've been in the Boston area for almost 10 years, I think. Yeah. Okay. What 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 uh, what spurred that move to, to Boston? You know, I actually just love Boston. <laughs> so uh, this is going to sound exactly on brand for all the people who live on the East Coast. But I enjoy the like in your face frank like no holds barred attitude of it all nice. um i used to live in the midwest like i went to grad school at the university of michigan and everyone there is like very sweet and polite and and, and nice and that that's just not who i am like i am kind of an in-your-face person <laughs> love it uh well yes. look, you're gonna be perfect guests for a podcast then um so no we're, i just know that boston's been a, a real hub for for cybersecurity and a lot of like as particularly israeli founders i've interviewed they've been uh, relocating to Boston and or New York. Um, so that that's just why I asked. But look, Anna, with all with all my guests, I really like to just roll back to, to where it all began and how you got into the industry. But I know for you, I want to ask, first of all, about your PhD. Because that was a pretty uh, cool what you did. It's a weird one. Yeah. So I um, thought all my life that I wanted to be a scientist, uh, largely because I just enjoyed figuring stuff out. Um, I was also influenced by my mom who was a scientist so there was some uh, bias of course but you know like you test on different kind of classes in school and different like careers people you know have um and that always seemed like a really cool thing to do so I committed to that like full on I went to school to to get a bachelor's degree in physics and then I started my PhD by the way to be fair I finished my bachelor's degree in 2008 which was like the worst time to get an entry-level job uh, it may be the second the second worst time after right now actually um <clears throat> so going to grad school was like the play if you didn't want to just starve and i was like whatever i'll just get, go to school and then i'll become a professor so after six years of phding um i was done i was like i can't do this for the rest of my life now i don't have any regrets because my work was really cool i actually started out doing experiments on solar cells yeah. uh so like all this photovoltaic research that's like, becoming like quite mainstream now uh, was very interesting. The problem with being like the scientist is discovering this stuff is you don't really get that like joy of seeing it become real. You're just like doing the same painful experiment every single day and like failing at it. And then you're doing it slightly differently. And then after like 200 days, you're just like, oh my God, kill me. Like I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> so yeah. I quit the experimental thing and I went, I switched to theory. So theory is like computational modeling where you're trying to do like all kinds of crazy math and, and physics calculations to figure out like what should happen. And uh, I did that actually also on electronic materials and then super alloys, which are made uh, used for jet engines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was pretty cool. It was much less soul crushing because you kind of like run some uh, jobs at a supercomputer and you can like go and have coffee while they run and then you like analyze data and then repeat. So it's less soul crushing. Uh, but turn still did not be for me. So I actually decided after I finished the PhD that I was going to go into something that is much more fast, like still technical and complex, but much more fast paced. Um, and basically everyone was like, well, you should be a software engineer or like something in IT. And I hate writing code. Um, I actually wrote code for my PhD because I had to create a whole new method for calculating stuff. Um, but I hate writing code. Like I can't sleep. I cannot stop thinking about the code. Yeah. Uh, so that wasn't going to be it. And, and then like I basically just applied for jobs, right? Like I went on the internet. I was like, okay, I'm going to apply for all the jobs ever because I don't like 
know what I want to do. Um, and I got interviewed by Gartner, which um, for anyone who's not familiar, is like an IT research and advisory firm. If you're familiar with McKinsey, it's kind of like that, but McKinsey is, will do like specific projects for people and Gartner is more proactive. So they do whatever they think is, is important. And then you call them and ask questions and answer them. Um, and so the thing about that is like Gartner usually employs very experienced people who have been doing something for like 30 years so they can go explain to other people how it should be done. But when there are emerging trends, like if there's some new technology coming on the market, they will actually employ younger people because they're kind of like, well, no one knows this. So I may as well like pay less money for talent, first of all. Uh, and second of all, um, have like a fresh open mind that somebody doesn't necessarily have a bias for like how things used to be. So like they did that with social media 20 years ago and then they did it with uh, cloud and containerization, which is when I joined. Nice. How long was you at Gartner for? I was there for six years. So I started out in infrastructure and operations. So I covered like DevOps, Kubernetes, like OpenShift, like all these things. Uh, and then I joined the security team after three years in know and spent three more years in the security operations team. Time flies when you just put it like that. What was um when you was uh when you was a Gartner? What what would you say was the the most exciting part? Oh, good question. The main wise. <laughs> yeah, Gartner's a really cool job. So, one of the coolest things is if you um if you make friends easily, you can get exposed to like every domain at Gartner. Like you get a really good bird's eye view of the entire industry, which is. I don't think there's anywhere else you can really do that. Um, and you don't realize that until you leave, by the way. Like, since Gartner was my first job, I didn't really have much perspective. And so I learned all this stuff and how it interconnects. And then I joined a vendor. And now I'm like, wow, most people really have no idea what goes on outside their domain because they're too busy working like on their actual job. So that's a really cool thing you get, I think, at Gartner. Um, the most fun topics to cover, I think, are the kind of intersections that are emerging, right? So when you have... So we got DevOps, right? And DevOps is all like, oh, let's ship software faster. That's great. Um, and then you go, oh, wait, well, how do we secure that? Right? So I think those intersections where we kind of like decided this is the right way to ship software and everyone agrees. And then we're like, well, what about security? And everyone's like, oh, I don't know. Like that sounds uncomfortable. Yeah. So those moments of tension um, that appear when new technology emerges and tries to like fit itself into our old and existing processes and biases are really interesting because you have to, you're really dealing with human psychology more than anything else. But if you don't understand how the technology works, you can't actually say anything or do anything about it. So it requires this intersection of skill, of like soft skills and hard skills. Like you have to know the tech, you have to understand what's going on and why. And then you have to understand like the perspectives of the people that are being involved and affected by this. Like why a developer doesn't want to do things a certain way. Like why an operations engineer is like mad at developers all the time. Um, and so those are super interesting. It's really hard to fix those problems, by the way, but like very interesting too. Um, think about them yeah a lot of people when they try to get into the industry i think that's one of the biggest problems for them is trying to work out which domain or what area of security they're most interested in or what they like doing so um it's really interesting that Gartner gave you a lot of exposure and i'm you're not the only person as well i spoke to augusto barros um he's at sacronix do you know him he's a very good friend of mine yes he's yeah. like one of the Mentors that taught me everything I know about security. Great guy, yeah. So um, <laughs> for anyone that's uh, potentially open to, to getting into the industry, you should definitely check out Gartner then because some some good thoroughbreds come out of there. Um, so yeah, after Gartner then, did you uh, did you join Cystic? Was that that the next step? Yeah, and I mean, this is like a, almost a joke, but it's true. A lot of people who spend some time at Gartner and decide to leave, some people don't leave, by the way. They'll stay there for 25 years or whatever. It's a really, really cool job. 
uh, they will go to their favorite vendor, which is yeah. funny because you're not supposed to have a favorite vendor, right? Because you're supposed to be objective. But you get so much exposure to all the different vendors and end users who are like telling you things about the products they're using that you get a very good sense for like which co- which companies have like a crap culture right? or which companies have like a really strong technical team. So you sort of get all this insider information. Um, and then it's pretty easy to go and like pick the company that you think will be the coolest to work for uh, and just go there. Uh, or, or the one that has the highest upside or, you know, whatever you're optimizing yeah, yeah. for, right? So I really cared about company culture. Uh, and Sysdig is pretty well known for having a really great company culture. Uh, so my kind of top three were I wanted a strong leadership team that had, like, it wasn't their first company because I'm not that brave. I wanted a really strong company culture. So people like weren't jerks basically, uh, but that they were there to get work done, that they weren't like just, you know, writing some fraud va- wave or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the product was... A, like solid technically and B, solving some modern problems. So I didn't want to work on like mainframes or, or some other stuff that's like still necessary, but not that exciting. Um, and Sysdig was kind of that company. Like there weren't too many that I considered actually. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so who are Sysdig for, for the audience? Uh, with Sysdig, yeah. So if you don't know, which you should, um, Sysdig is a cloud and container security company. We are one of the leading CDAPs, if you know what that is. If you read lots of Gartner documents, you should. Uh, CNAP stands for Cloud Native Application Protection Platform. So this is a security tool suite that is designed to protect applications that are built in and for the cloud. Um, And we do that all the way from like configuration assessment and vulnerability assessment through to threat detection and incident response. I will put the careers uh, URL in the show notes as well for anyone that's also interested in that. So your role specifically at Sysdig, what when you joined to now what you're doing now, how's it evolved and what are you up to specifically? Uh, yes, yeah, so my role hasn't changed too much. Uh, I kind of joined as an individual contributor and now I manage a small team. So that's the one evolution. Uh, what so I'm called the director of cybersecurity strategy, which is a little nebulous, but what this means is um, when you work for a vendor that's in an emerging market, there is a very strong required like, need to, to do kind of awareness marketing, if you will, right? Um, and awareness marketing sounds like, uh, you know, putting things on billboards so people know you exist. And this is sort of like that, but in a way, it's, it's, it's very hard to do this for a technology that no one really understands, right? So what I, and so there's one moment of like, people don't actually know what's happening. Like you might not know what Kubernetes is, right? Or you might not know how to secure Kubernetes. Um, and then there are people who know what's happening and they're trying to do it, but they really don't know how. Um, so in the how to do it, if you're lucky, you actually go to Gartner or like one a firm like that and you say, hey, well, these people sit there and they do research on how new stuff should happen. So I'm going to call them and ask. Um, if you aren't engaged with Gartner because I don't know, it's expensive or, or whatever reason, you kind of are just Googling like for information or you're like asking your friends, you're going to like communities and trying to get this input. And honestly, like there's not necessarily that much good content available on anything emerging because no one knows. Um, so what my team does is we try to help people along in their journey. Like we want people to know who Sysdig is because we are a player in the space, obviously. But before even that, we want people to know like what is going on. Like what are the problems of the day in containers or in cloud or in Kubernetes or in DevOps, all these things, right? Um, how do our most mature customers solve that, right? I have relationships with a bunch of like financial companies who have been doing this for, I don't know, more than a decade. And so I can take kind of lessons we've learned from them and pass those on. I mean, without saying who they are or what exactly they did, right? But I can give like best practices uh, kind of advice to people who are just getting started. Because we have customers across the board. We have like people who are just getting in a cloud in the past three years and people have been in cloud for like 
well, it's been almost 20 years now. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're try we try to be like that knowledge transfer kind of like office of we're just here to help you understand. And then we hope that that builds our brand as a company that is smart and helpful and wants to be a partner with you. Um, and then we do help our marketing and sales counterparts because their job is to, of course, like spread the good word of Sysdig and actually make money. Um, but we intentionally kind of stay a little bit distance from them because we don't want to be perceived as selling the product because we're not really. Um, but hopefully you yeah, yeah. decide that we're cool and then buy our product later, obviously. <laughs> Before we dive into the contents, I know that you've produced a report recently that has a lot of really interesting data. How, and you mentioned 20 years and then obviously last three years, how has it evolved the particularly the cloud security space like in, what have you seen like any real evolution that you you think wow yeah yeah i mean it's funny to think it's been 20 years so that is actually another thing that my team does is we work very closely with the threat research team and what they do is they literally uncover like new threats and then they uh they actually build the content into uh detection engineering for the product right so when they find like some new campaign, malicious campaign, they will create rules and detections, machine learning, whatever, to help our customers detect it. And then what we do is we try to tell a greater story. Like, okay, what are we seeing over the course of this year or several years or whatever? So for a while, um, we didn't actually see any threats in cloud. Like people did stuff in cloud for, well, this was since like 2005 or something, right? Mm. And security was like, oh, we maybe should be secure. And then for a while, like, oh, it's security by default because the cloud providers are very good at it. And then it's like, oh, the cloud providers are really bad at it, like this vulnerability, whatever. So we went through all these like waves of, we're not really sure, but there wasn't like a big event that everyone noticed until probably the Capital One breach, which now has yeah. also been a while, right? Like yeah. 10 years ago, oh my God. Um, and so that the Capital One breach was cool because, well, cool. It was interesting because it was this very uh, specific tension between like, is it the cloud provider's fault or the customer's fault? Um, and it was an incident threat situation, so it was very complex. Mm. And after that, we started really seriously like expecting attacks to come in. Um, and so that, and you're still kind of dealing with mostly with APTs, right? Because like the first thing that happens is the APTs go for the forward-leading companies. Which, by the way, one of the things we saw in our threat report is like the number one target of attacks is financial services, right? Obviously, because they're usually the most advanced. Um, and then we saw the sea of like crypto miners and other like generic fraud, right? So the first real like cloud threats or cloud attack that everybody started to see was crypto miners. So yeah. probably for five plus years now, we see just tons of crypto miners everywhere. Um, and that's like, okay, it's not that interesting because it's just money, right? Like you're losing, you're paying a higher bill. Um, they're fairly easy to detect if you have tools in place. And the damage is not that substantial usually, although some of those bills have come to like half a million a year extra money that you should cough up. Like, mm. Anyway, um, what's interesting though is we now see more and more creative ways of people abusing crypto mining, like the crypto mining on three tier accounts, right? So like they'll get free tier accounts and GitHub or GitLab and all these kind of services. They're starting to crypto mine on like less frequently used AWS services. So like they'll find all the services that aren't that popular, expecting people to not monitor them as much and they'll start mining on those. So they're getting more and more creative, right? And then uh, this year probably was the first year where we started seeing sort of more interesting attacks, right? So now we're seeing kind of attempts at, a lot of attempts at account, account compromise, right? Because if you can get credentials, you can do things with those credentials and maybe find more credentials. And so this, uh, approach of like, if I can find any credential in cloud and then just like find a way to pivot, I might be on to, well, if nothing else, lots of servers to crypto mine on, right? Um, so one key takeaway that's really mind blowing that probably you also noticed is that the amount of time it takes to execute one of these attacks is super short, right? So 
there is a huge amount of automation that's going into this. And what you end up with is essentially a 10 minute time span. So from when your your existence is discovered, like they're scanning, you know, the internet or whatever, they're looking for you, or they find a credential that it belongs to your company somewhere on the dark web, um, to the moment that you experience impact, right? So that's malware that's been dropped onto you or like data has been exfiltrated from you. Uh, it takes 10 minutes, like only 10 minutes. And again, wow. that's average, right? So you'll have yeah. some that are longer, but you have some that are shorter, right? It's just like, wow. Um, one of the reasons we, we think, uh, is actually like, it's a trade off, right? Like it's a, it's a huge benefit of cloud that everything is pretty uniform, right? So like your CSP of choice has a set of APIs that are exposed and they're, they're always the same and they're well-documented. So you, you can go look up how they work, how to interact with them and, and everything about them. Um, and so that information is also available to attackers, right? So before when you hide your like crazy bespoke data center configuration that you built from scratch over dozens of years, where like half the people that put it together are no longer there, you know? Uh, somebody would get into your environment, like I said, they breach your perimeter and now they have to figure out like this tangled mess of nonsense and see what where they can get the valuable, you know, data from. In cloud, like everyone has the same infrastructure basically, like it all looks the same. So the attackers can kind of practice their attacks ahead of time on their own, like account that they just paid for or stole, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and they can create these fairly complex automations that actually, because they know, well, they can enumerate this thing, enumerate that thing, right? It's all known ahead of time. So it makes it much easier to do uh, reconnaissance, for example. You can just like fire up a bunch of scripts and there you are. How many, um, how many like APTs are you guys tracking at the moment? Have you got sort of a, is there a, a certain number or is it, is it, I'm guessing it's growing. Is it decreasing? I imagine it's going up or. Uh, yeah. So it's really, it's really hard to tell actually. Um, then I don't know how many we're tracking. I'm going to, if I had to guess, I would say it's on the order of like half dozen to a dozen, yeah. but, but it's really hard to attribute. Right. So yeah, there course. is, um, this is all another interesting moment about like it evolution that like, it's good that we got open source and that it's so popular now. But like the malicious guys are also into open source. Like you can get open source malware, you can get open source, like you name it, scripts for whatever. So what happens is they develop some kind of attack pattern or some kind of, you know, automation for reconnaissance in cloud provider of choice, right? And they just post it on GitHub or online, like for people to download and use. So what, what you used to do is you would attribute based on like the kinds of tactics or the specific kinds of scripts or whatever that you saw the APT use. Yeah. And now we just can't tell because they're sharing all their stuff. So like a lot of different APTs could look like each other or a lot of like even not, I mean, script kitties, like people who are not necessarily advanced persistent threats who are just like random people on the internet screwing around yeah, can yeah. download these tools and use them, right? So anyway, it's becoming much harder to attribute. Um, there's still things you can use to tell, right? Sometimes the language gives them away, like people yeah. have comments <laughs> in like yeah. Indonesian or whatever. And you're like, yeah. okay, well, it's probably, they're not Russians because they're Indonesian, right? Um, so we do use things like that. Um, but yeah, it, it's kind of a dark art. Like the whole attribution is, is very complex. Yeah, yeah. What was the difference between a recon and a discovery? Because when I was reading the threat report, I did notice that that was in there. So the, the difference between a recon and a discovery. So is the recon actually when you're alerted, you've still got time. But if you're then discovering, you're sort of screwed. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of our TLDR, right? So a recon... Um, Recon can mean, I guess, a lot of different things, but recon is basically the attacker trying to figure out what is out there. Right. Um, some recon actions will just be that, like, they may be using, like, Shodan or something. Like, they're just trying to figure out what, um, 
endpoints are accessible, right? And so you may not even know, like that endpoint may have gotten pinged or something. Like you might not never know that they're looking for you. Uh, and so the problem with that is it's very difficult to alert on recon. I mean, you can, but it's, it'd be very noisy because most of recon just looks normal, like normal Got activity, it. right? Um, the discovery phase means they are actually, they've essentially chosen you as a target. And now they are trying to figure out what they can do to you. So at that point, like they, they have consciously execute a big gun to execute the attack against you and so like obviously an alert at some point is better than an alert never uh but you ideally you figure out you can catch some of the recon activity somehow so that you know that something's coming and then by the time you see the discovery activity you're kind of like already doing something um even if it's just like hopefully it's some automatic response but maybe it's just increased like attention that you're paying to certain systems because you see some weirdness yeah so yeah, I mean, the further down the kill chain you go, right, the worse it gets, basically. But the kind of our thought process in general is something we're talking about now uh, is you essentially, because you have 10 minutes, um, what we suggest you be able to do is you catch all the signals that are relevant within five seconds, right? So if you have a five second to second resolution for detection of signals, you're going to be okay. And then you have, a, you have five minutes to figure out what the signals mean, right? Because some of the activities are so noisy and look so benign. Um, if you can, within five minutes, correlate activities to each other, right? Like we saw them enumerate accounts and then we saw them like uh, reach out to the metadata service or something like that, right? You start putting those dots together in real time because we're used to doing it afterward, right? Like we collect logs and collect all this information and then afterward we process the information because the attack could take days or weeks, right? In this case, attack takes 10 minutes. So after it's like, it's over, like they took the data, right? Um, so if you can detect in five seconds, correlate in five minutes, and then begin the incident response in five more minutes, then you'll be okay. So we're calling that the 555 benchmark for cloud threat detection. Um, and it's based like heavily on this report and then on basically uh, research we've done with our customers and uh, kind of partners and analyst yeah. firms and so on. So it's a different, it's a completely different world in terms of how yeah. we operate. And like you basically are dealing with a fully, well, fully heavily automated malicious actor. So you have no choice but to heavily automate yourself or you are in, in deep trouble. Yeah. Without um, people being directed straight to Cystic, is there any like basic hygiene that, that folks can can do before they do start exploring products like yours? Oh, I mean, yeah, there's tons of basic hygiene. I mean, honestly, like I, uh, I shouldn't recommend Gertner, but honestly, like if you have a Gertner subscription or if someone in your yeah. company does, you should just go read like all of their basic... Nice. Yeah, like how fair. to do that. So there's like guidance frameworks. There's all kinds of like hygiene documents because a lot of that stuff's been covered by Gartner over for, for years now. And it's, it's a very good resource. Um, you can also find decent resources online. Like if you just look through like the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, for example, has a lot of content that you can look at. Um, Cloud Security Alliance has a lot of content. Um, yeah. There's a bunch of training available now from like Isaka and um, SANS and all these other orgs that normally do security training. So like if you asked me, I don't know, 10 plus years ago, it would have been like, I don't know, no one knows what cloud security is. But now there's actually a lot um, to get you started. And then I would say once you feel like you have a good understanding of like how identity works in cloud and kind of like how configuration works in cloud, um, then you can start exploring some of the more complex tools that are kind of like end-to-end, -end, like full cloud application lifecycle security systems, because they're pretty complex. Um, a lot of people just start on one end and then kind of like eventually add more things. But but of course we're more than happy to chat with you, yeah. you know, in a completely non-sales engagement. Like if you just <laughs> want to learn about, <laughs> you're probably going to get bombarded now with uh, with folks reaching out. But no, I'll put I'll put your LinkedIn. 
I promise to not tell my sales team we ever spoke. Yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but no, look, Anna. In terms of the the space in general, like, what what's your thoughts around the future? And obviously, the threat report. I'll put that in in the show notes for folks to look at. But in terms of your perspective, what do you think the future holds? I think it's going to be super exciting. I mean, we're essentially in a new era of operations, right? So, cloud changed a lot of things. Like it made a lot of things easier um, and faster, which is cool. It creates a bunch of new challenges because now we have to learn how to do that securely, how to do that safely, how to do it cost efficiently. Um, so we're sort of reinventing a lot of things, but we're also inventing a lot of new things, which is really fun. Um, I enjoy kind of ambiguity. So I kind of like to be in a space where there's stuff to figure out, stuff to learn and stuff to come up with solutions to. So this is like awesome for me. Uh, if you're not really into that, then maybe choose a different <laughs> career path. Um, but I think we've got, I mean, plus with AI now, right? Like we just got decades and decades of of, of hard problems to solve. And that's that's fun for me. So hopefully it's fun for your listeners. Love it. Anna, thanks for coming on the show and uh, I'll see you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed today's show, please like and share with your friends and colleagues as this is really important for the show's reach. If you'd like to be our next guest or are interested in Aspron Search's staffing solutions, please get in touch directly with me or reach out to us via our website, www.aspronsearch.com.